I'm going to quit my job and go back to school. Where's the cash flow coming from? Those are the kinds of things that you have to look at most seriously if you're saying, I want to get out of clinical practice and do something different, but is that an achievable and reasonable goal? Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and the co-founder of IV Clinicians. Recently, we've seen surveys come through across various industries that don't portray working in healthcare very positively. In fact, out of all of the workplace categories, healthcare ranks dead last in job satisfaction and highest in burnout. It's not even close. Something has gone wrong in our workplaces. Our guest today is Dr. Harry Severance from Duke University and the Erlanger Medical Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Harry has pretty much done it all in emergency medicine. He's been a researcher, a teacher, he's set up residencies, he's done government work, military work, and he's now helping other physicians in guiding them through what brings them job satisfaction. Harry is helping fix a problem he's been seeing in our industry for a long time. You know, there's nothing more upsetting than maybe spending your life growing up to be in a physician, in emergency medicine, intern, whatever, and five, 10, 15 years into your career, you suddenly wake up one morning and say, I hate my life, I hate my job. You know, uh, how does one change direction at that time in your life? Changing directions is extremely challenging and sometimes impossible because being an ER doctor is such a specific skill set. What could we pivot to that would come close to providing the lifestyle we're accustomed to? Well, Dr. Severance has written an article listing 14 of the main issues that are causing burnout and dissatisfaction in healthcare, and also what we can do about it. Let's dig into some of those issues. 75% of all assaults that occur in workplaces across this country, 75% occur in emergency departments. That alone causes a lot of ER doctors and nurses. You, you know, you want to know that you go to work and you work hard and, you know, there are rigors and you always worry about, you know, unintended consequences, but you'd like to know at the end of your shift, you're able to go home to your family. You know, what mm -hmm. happens if you don't show up? You know, what if you're the sole breadwinner? You know, it's not just you. You're out there making a living for your family. What happens if you can't, you can't come home? What happens to your family? Right. You have to sit there now as an emergency physician or emergency nurse or others that work in the emergency departments. What if you get killed on your job site? It's happened. Mm. It is happening, you know, there were uh, several deaths in emergency departments just to, just right before Christmas. So, you mm. know, many people are starting to think, I don't think I can afford to work in emergency medicine. Uh, I can't say for sure that I can, def I can protect my family from loss of income. That alone is causing many people to think, maybe I need to find a less risky job. So that's one of the 14. There are a whole lot of others that, you know, the toxic workplace, 
you know, uh, many of us look at healthcare and look at how many, uh, face it, in emergency medicine, we're the safety net. You know, the people that mm-hmm. can't go anywhere else come to us and think about how many, our emergency departments are my, my day, you know, some days it, you can be 24 hours before you really get some definitive care. And we all know right. a large majority of that are people for complaints that need to be addressed, but they have no other place to go. And we're seeing more and more and more of that. So our emergency departments are becoming overwhelmed. So, you know, one of the big factors, again, looking at statistics and data, the United States has the most, by far, expensive healthcare system in the whole world, bar none. Mm -hmm. But our quality is ranked as poor. If you look at other countries, the uh, Germany system, you know, they have in many ways similar systems. They expend only 12% of their gross domestic product, yet their healthcare system is ranked by almost all is high to excellent. We spend five times as much as they do, and everybody ranks us as poor. So, right. and we see, we see some of the side effects of that in our emergency departments every day when we look at the lobby and look at the, the types of patients that we're seeing. Um, again, I talked about burnout. I talked about the dangers of the workplace. In emergency medicine, we always face these impossible workloads and somehow we're resilient. We seem to do it. Uh, but there's studies now that say for those on the clinic side, uh, and a family practice doc, there was one big study that showed if you try to do everything that you're required to do to see all your patients in one day and do it according to all the standards and the hospital's demands and the billing and the peer-to-peers, that it only takes you 27 hours out of every 24 to get your work done. <laughs> so the workloads are impossible. We can talk with another that adds to that burden. We don't see it so much in emergency medicine, but this prior authorization problem. Mm. Uh, a big thing in emergency med- non-compete clauses, which prevent you from moving uh, locally. And as emergency physician, you know, in healthcare in general, uh, most of us don't live, maybe some do, but, you know, I don't live in New York City. I don't live in San Francisco or, you know, there are only right. so many hospitals in the town. If your state supports non-compete clauses and you're unhappy in your hospital, um, and there's a non-compete laws which they're going to enforce, then you may have to move to a different city. You have to move out of state. Yet it's not just you. Uh, you've got your spouse who may have you mm-hmm. know moved with you, found a job. He or she may be happy in that job. You know, most of us in early mid career, you probably have one, two, three, maybe four stair step kids, K through twelve. They're each in their school Mm -hmm. system. They've got their circle of friends. They're happy. You may have family that have moved. You may have chosen that location because you've already got relatives or maybe a relative moved to be close to you in support. What if you suddenly find out, I I can't stand this. I need to change my job. But now you're forced to move out of state. We know that companies, healthcare and otherwise, know that. I mean, you know for a fact Mm -hmm. when they're recruiting, they, if 
two candidates that are equally qualified, the one that has the family is going to get the job before the one that doesn't. And one of the subtle, nasty reasons for that is now you're locked in. If you don't like your job, you may just have to say, I'll just have to tough it out for the family and become a resentful employee. But these are, you know, these are just some of the things. Uh, like I said, I'm not, I'm just hitting the high points of the 14 I listed. But, you know, life in the healthcare workplace is, is not pretty right now. And so uh, I think I mentioned um, at a different time, in the past two years, we've seen 20% of the healthcare workforce leave healthcare. That's how bad mm-hmm. the healthcare workplace is. And what, what is 20%, what does that mean? Well, we're told that there are about 22 million people in the United States working in the healthcare industry. That means you've had four to five million people exiting healthcare for other careers and professions. And we all know there's a shortage of nurses in the emergency department. We face that every day. We know there are empty beds upstairs, but our patients are sitting in the hallways because there are no nurses to staff those beds. And now maybe not even enough doctors to manage their care upstairs. So we've seen this exit. You try to get your patient into clinic. They, yeah, maybe they, maybe they do have insurance, but they've never had a need before or just weren't connected. You can identify, your case manager can find them a doctor, but oh, by the way, the next appointment available is three months from now. You know, I've, tr- I've tried uh, going to my physicians in order to get a space and for my annual, I have to make sure I, I call up three to six months in advance or I can't get yep. an appointment. The same thing. The shortage in healthcare providers, not just in critical care, it's all through the clinic system. And again, we see the backup as these patients can't access their regular doctors and show up in our lobbies. So it's a huge crisis in healthcare. You know, again, to get me off my soapbox, I can go on and on. I apologize. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about why it's dangerous to think of of burnout as a mental illness or a personal failing on the side of of the doctor? Quite frankly, it irks me. I've seen I've, you know state legislators, uh, medical societies. They're all pushing. Oh, we need to get better mental mental health resources out there. We need to help. We need to remove the stigma of saying, uh, gee, I'm depressed, you know, this. And don't get me, I agree with all of that, but they're, they're using workplace burnout as a tool to improve our mental health resources, and that's okay. But then that kind of makes its own stigma of saying, and I've actually heard administrators tell me this, is that, they allege that we go into healthcare because we're adrenaline junkies and we love the stress, we love the trauma, we love the conflict. I guess I know where they're coming from because many people that go into hospital administration at one point wanted to be doctors and nurses and then at some point it got too tough. CEO of my hospital is very proud to announce that he started off as a respiratory therapist, but he said he couldn't cut it. Work was too hard, so he went into management. But... What's my point in all this? Um, you struggle in your healthcare environment and um, you just battle 
And it's what I think is it's systemic issues. It's the system that make us all feel depressed, burned out. I mentioned four to five million people have left healthcare in the last two years. Are they all frail? Were they too fragile to be able to take the stress of working in healthcare? I don't think so. I think it's the system that is that, is that destructive and that abusing that mm-hmm. are causing. And in order to make workplaces better, we have to improve the workplace. Now, you know, a lot of people would say, yeah, great. How are you going to do that? And I can't swear that I, I can give you, I'm not on that side of the, so I don't have my six magic things to make the healthcare workplace better, but I've actually seen it happen. I believe I related to you at a different time, a story of mm-hmm. a physician that I know that left her practice because she said her workplace issues were just too great. And she decided one day her boss got fired and then she thinks I'm next and it can come any day. Mm. So she had an opportunity to move to a, a local hospital in her community and their non-compete clause are not enforced in her area. So she just decided to get out before they fired her. But it was a temporary thing. She see, again, she has a spouse that moved with her and now happy in the job, several kids. And I said, how are things going? And she said, well, this is a temporary thing. I just need to keep the cash flow, keep my family stable, and give me time to kind of sort out over the next year or so where I'm going to go next. Well, then, uh, about nine months later, I believe I heard that the hospital at which she works had partnered with or been bought out by private equity. Mm. And I said, oh, my God, you know, we see what happens when private equity takes over hospital system in many cases. So the next time I saw her, I was kind of like very, you know, timidly saying, how are you doing? And she said, oh, Harry, I'm great. Oh, I said, wow, what's going on? She said, my job has really gotten good recently. And I said, didn't your hospital get bought out by? She said, yeah. And you know, the strangest thing. She's, they sent a management team in and that management team did uh, press Ganey surveys They've started calling us internal customers. They sat us down and said, our goal is to make your workplace happier. And then they even threw in, they said, we're not doing this just for you. Said, we're in a competitive market and there's a shortage of doctors and nurses. Our plan by making your, your workplace happy is that you become agents for us and you help us recruit doctors and nurses away from our competing hospitals. And I was like, Smart wow. Business. And that caused me, I wrote a, wrote a publication on that, you know, with could competition actually help make the workplace better? Maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know if other companies, corporations, hospitals will take a look at that, but I was sure like, wow, that sure works at that place. So, again, that's kind of the problem and maybe a pathway to solution. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. 
Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. And you do mention uh, two of your your 14 points are financial. So one is uh, industry-wide employment compensation inequity, and another one is record profits for some. Can you talk a little bit about the financial aspects that lead to burnout? If you look at that, you know, physician salaries, um, we, you know, have gone up slightly, but only slightly. In some service areas, we have some physicians saying they are making less. Some of that may be you've been moved, you now are an employee, but but physician mm-hmm. salaries have been relatively static. We know that, you know, government-wise, CMS is cutting back on physician compensation. I believe there's a 22% cut if that goes through. At the same time, since about 1980, we've seen an increase in hospital management. It's gone up 1,300% since 1975 or 80. It's expanded that much. And, oh, by the way... Their salaries, and you get in the higher end, are astronomical. If you look at C-suite personnel, the average CEO salary in this country is between ten and twenty million dollars a year. Ten and twenty million dollars. Hospital management salaries now, uh, you know, I heard early on in my career, oh, you're a doctor, you're rich, you know, you're going to be rich. No, if you want to be rich in healthcare, now you go into management. You know, you don't go into clinical practice, you you go into management. So uh, that's kind of one of the big things. And then, and we can drill down on that further, but you brought up another point is that, you know, in the healthcare workplace, some people are making record profits. You look at big pharma, you look at device manufacturing, you look at insurance corporations. Uh, you know, they're all making record profits. Um, in fact, probably the only place that is suffering is the, is the healthcare workplace. You know, many hospitals are financially upside down. Healthcare workers uh salaried healthcare workers that you see them trying to cut their salaries back or we have to let you go. So all these organizations that are based on healthcare for their industry and their profit, making record profits, but the one thing, the pillar on which they all rest, the healthcare workplace system is collapsing right under them. So, you know, I've heard other people say, and I'm, you know, I'm worried that I don't know that our healthcare system under its current design is sustainable. It may collapse. And you've you've phrased that partly as suits versus scrubs. 
you've had a, um, a few decade career at this point. How would you say things are different now from you know, 10, 20 years ago? Um, again, I'm talking about this rise of management. And, you know, I've al- always heard, you know, since the time I was a medical student, suits versus scrubs. Uh, but um, management, I watch it now. I try to attend uh, meetings where there are a lot of healthcare executives. I'm trying to get a better understanding of how this hospital structure works. But what I'm seeing, and I'm not liking it, is this evolution of what I would call a clique or a cult of management. And it's the system that has been created for the managers. And that is if you watch management at work, and I've been to many hospitals and kind of seen things um, as they go, but managers, especially mid-level managers, they are run from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. Mm -hmm. They may come to the clinical workplace if there's a problem. Otherwise, uh, they're just going, during all of this, you know, meeting time, they get a steady indoctrination of not not unreasonable. I mean, they're told how financially problematic their hospital is. They're, you know, they're continually assailed with, you've got to find us more profit. You've got to cut down our expenses. You've got to reduce our loss. Uh, all these types of things, either overtly or occultly, I'm seeing evolve in this clique, this cult of management, this kind of us versus them. More and more, I've actually heard Mm. statements about how many times in many hospital systems, management sees the healthcare workers as just worker bees and people they don't like a whole lot. I heard at a big management conference once uh, where a lot of major player CEOs and corporate heads and in in the hotel, host hotel bar at about 10 or 11 one night, I saw over at the other end uh, one of these major figures in healthcare pontificating to his audience, and I heard him actually say, I wish I had my phone out and could have recorded it, but uh, he, he was going on. He said, you know, what's one of the biggest problems in healthcare? He said, all them blank, blank, blank doctors and nurses. He said, they're the biggest mm-hmm. obstruction to profitable healthcare. So when you have a environment where suits versus scrubs, you have management looking disparagingly on its workforce, you know, denigrating and not respecting them. And certainly we have no place at their table right now. Uh, how, How many hospital boards do you, how many physicians are on a hospital management board or how many nurses? Almost none, if any. Uh, we don't have a voice at their table. It's very easy for them uh, as a clique or a cult continually wrapped up in their end of the pie to see us as some type of lesser people. I've actually had mm. management people at these meetings tell me that they allege that, again, like I said a little bit earlier, that it's our job to make things right. Their job is to reduce costs, improve profits, 
But we we went through years of training. We got board certified in taking care of patients. I've had it alleged to me by management that they're doing their job by cutting costs and making money. It's our job and our obligation to make their decisions right for the patients. I've actually told them. Mm. So uh, whatever they lay upon the workplace, we somehow are obligated to make that right for the patient. And, and oh, by the way, you know, our malpractice system supports that. Think about it. Uh, if there's a bad outcome in most jurisdictions and, and states, you can't sue a hospital administrator, even though they're the ones that made the decision. You have to sue a, sue a licensed doctor or nurse. So again, the whole system uh, actually supports this new ethic that I see evolving, again, suits versus scrubs. That's why, again, I, I, you asked me what my view of the future of healthcare is, and I said, it's kind of dismal. I could see uh, it, it collapsing. So one thing that I like about your work is that you take it to the next step. It's not just there are clear causes for frustration and burnout, but you have a plan that they can guide clinicians through. Um, the first step of that is identify the root cause or causes of your dissatisfaction. Can you kind of take us through how you approach things? Oh uh, yeah, I've started. I've you know had people reach out to me, call me, email me, and say, "I hear you do work in this area." Or I either attended, or somebody told me they went to one of your presentations on, uh, you know, what's wrong with the workplace? What are my options? And so I've had chance to speak with, with some people. Actually, I think it's slightly growing, but through my own experience and talking with others, the you know first thing you know the people that reach out to me are unhappy, and many of them are kind of you know they they get around to calling somebody when they when they sit there and tell me at ten o'clock at night my next shift is at seven a.m. and I just can't do it. You know, I, I just can't go to work tomorrow. Can you fix me tonight? And um, <laughs> if only it was the that short easy. answer, no. But um, but you know, they're dissatisfied, they're unhappy, they're depressed. But if, when you start asking them, well, tell me about your problems, most of the time, what you realize is they're describing symptoms, and mm-hmm. many of them maybe not recognizing that, you know, well, what's causing all this? And then there's a big pause and you have to kind of talk through. But the the first critical, if you're unhappy, dissatisfied, discontent, the first thing you got to do is recognize, well, here are the symptoms. And your responses may not, oh, I drink a lot of alcohol at night. I can't go to sleep, so I just stay awake and, and go to my next shift you know, without, without any sleep. Mm. I go on lots of expensive vacations and just don't think about, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the symptoms or responses are. But what I've found is that in order to solve the problem, first you've got to get down to what is the problem. You've got to find out what's, the, what's at the root of this. And then, you know, your, the root problem may be, and everybody's different, the root problem may be fairly simplistic. I hate my boss. You know, mm. we're dumb. We, we're opposite as that we're never going to get along. Da, 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 da. So maybe the answer 
is, you know, simple. Non-competes may make it non-simple, but, oh, if, you know, if I found, you know, went to another hospital uh, where my interactions with my employee, my, my chief and stuff are better, then I'm happy. Great. Let's work towards how can we get you your same career, but another job. Maybe you, uh, you've, you or a colleague uh, got beat up in their shift yesterday or last mm. week or last month. Uh, let's say you can't let it go or this is happening on a regular basis and you're starting to really think, what about my family? What happens if I don't come home at the end of my shift? And start saying, I don't think I can do general emergency medicine anymore. I don't feel safe when I go to work. Okay, well, what, you know, we would look at, what are your skill sets? Uh, can you change careers? In, in emergency medicine, there are a lot of options within emergency medicine. There's hyperbarics, uh, EMS, which may be just as risky, but uh, observation medicine, uh, the re clinical research, there are lots of areas that you can get into that still are within the halls of emergency medicine, may require some modifications and extension of your skill, but you can still make that leap. Maybe you're, for whatever reason, you're saying, you know, back when I was a medical student, I'm, I chose emergency medicine, maybe I should have chosen dermatology. It's a bigger leap. You know, can you, can maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're saying, I don't want to see patients. Maybe I'll do telemedicine or, or maybe I'm going to go sell used cars. Uh, you know, I've seen all ends of the spectrum. <clears throat> but like I said, first, you've got to figure out what is the problem. Once you've identified that, then you can move forward. A caveat I put in that when you're identifying the problem, don't be unwilling to face the fact that maybe the problem's you. you know, emergency mm. physicians, we're, we're cats and we're different and we like to pride ourselves on being different. But I know a lot of emergency medicines, a lot of colleagues I've had in the different shops I've worked in that aren't easy to get along with. Sometimes we can be right. abrasive, right. we can be different, we can be hard to deal with. So especially in the halls of emergency medicine, we have to be very honest and say, is the, pro is the reason we're having an unhappy workplace is all the bounce back from the things that we do in the workplace. You have to ask that question and say, is, and if the problem is you, we've met the enemy and they are us, then, then yes, maybe you do need some counseling. Maybe that's the time to go get some help. You can fix your workplace by fixing yourself. So, but you have to ask that question. Let's say that's not the issue. Uh, once you do problems, you've got to decide how far can you and will you go? Uh, is it you just, uh, you and your boss, like I said, you and your boss need another localized workplace. You need to change to a different type of emergency medicine practice, maybe hyperbarics, maybe short-term observation. Maybe, gee, you know, I, I want to retrain and become a dermatologist, maybe. Or maybe I want to get out of healthcare. Maybe do telemedicine distantly or sell cars. Um, but once you have reached the point at which you can answer that question, now you can move forward and make that next step, whatever that next step is. But it's one of the hardest things to be able to get to that point, honestly. How do you guide clinicians who say to you, 
I know I don't want to work in clinical medicine anymore, but I'm not really sure what else to do. How, what are the next steps there? Well, it, you know, that gets back to um, what, what, what skills do you bring to the table? What's your background? You know, did you do other things before you went into the halls of medicine? Are, are you comfortable with growing a new skin? Are you willing to mm. sit down and say, maybe I want to be a lawyer? Are you willing to go back to law school? Now, physicians are bright. You know, we're very, right. and we're very good at test taking and those skills that allow us to excel in a learning environment. So certainly it is not impossible for many of us, even to mid-career, to go say, I'm going to fast track myself into a whole different work climate. I'm going to learn uh you know, those equity stocks and bonds, I'm going to become a financier or I'm going to be a lawyer or it's certainly possible for us to do this educationally and intellectually. But then there's another set of questions. Are you single? Do you have family? Mm. If you've got a family and you say, I'm going to quit my job and go back to school, where's the cash flow coming from? Well, how, what's the effect on your spouse, your kids, you know, all the people that depend on you, yeah, you might say, gee, I'd like to go back and retrain, but uh, financially, can you afford to do so? So these, you know, that's the other side of that coin. Uh, maybe you now, you know what you want to do, but is that an achievable and reasonable goal? Uh, again, hard to say, everybody's different. But that those are the kinds of things that you have to look at if you're really most seriously, if you're saying, I want to get out of clinical practice and do something different. And oh, by the way, there's a heck of a lot of retraining that I have to go through. Big jump. Right. And one of the things you've you've discussed in the past is side gigs as a way to kind of test the waters. Um, the Facebook group Physician Side Gigs actually has 100,000 members in it. So presumably there's a lot of demand for physician side gigs. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, how do you use a, a side gig to figure things out? Sure. We've seen the evolution with uh, all of this dissatisfaction workplace of career coaches, career counselors. You can get on the internet and put in those terms and come up with a whole lot of people that will try to coach you through. And some of these coaches will actually tell you, you need to just walk in and quit. And when I asked them, why in the heck would you tell somebody that? And said, yeah. well, they've got to get off the dime. They gotta, they've, mm. they've got to put some you know, uh, stuff in the game. You need, they need to move. And if they quit their job, they now have no choice. They have to move forward. They have to make that next step. Yeah. They're committed. And okay, that's great if you're single. But again, what if you can't bring home that salary check to your family next week? Uh, now you're in big trouble. Yeah, now you're committed to move, but what happens if, oh, I didn't think about that, and now that six-month plan is now a five-year plan and you got no income? That's why I think side gigs uh, are a great way to test. So you could say, well, I've, you know, I've got uh, five hours a day. There are a lot of these, you'll see, you'll go read these things about the most successful people, the millionaires and many, you keep coming up with this many, somehow or other, and I've seen this multiple times that put an hour a day 
into some new learning or new area. And so um, start saying, okay, uh, I've, I've got to change my life, but I can't just quit my job. But what if I take on a new endeavor and I, I put in an hour a day trying to grow this new skill set or this new era area, this side gig, and slowly build that up? Uh, I think that's an excellent way. Once you know what your your cause is, once you see what your goals are, to start a little piece at a time doing that. Now, having said that, I'll also say that and back to this thing, oh, just go in and quit your job. A lot of us are procrastinators and we may have identified the root cause. We may even say, I know where I want to be, but you know, we still have to make money. So every day we go to our job and, you know, we just never get around to it. And the people that say go in and quit, they've answered that problem by saying, I've given you no choice. Now you're all in. You've got all your skin in the game. Now you've got to move. <clears throat> but with a with getting into a side gig, uh, the key thing is do it. When I was in high school, yeah. my 10th grade English teacher, who I thought was, you know, you know in 10th grade, we're, we're, in, we're all geniuses and we know everything. And our teachers are all stupid. <laughs> right. I heard her one day, it was, it was an English comp class, and a couple of my colleague students were whining about, they couldn't, and I remember Miss Nelson said she took those great big bottle-bottom glasses off and stared at him and said, now students, the best way to begin is to begin. And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know what? <laughs> it is one of the best things I've, every time I've been successful at doing something, it's because I put some skin in the game. I said, I'm going to make that first step. I'm going to do whatever it is to make, to make that first little sentence or paragraph on the route. And once you've done that, you look yeah. back and say, oh, that wasn't so hard. Now I can make the next step yeah. and then the next step and then the next step. So a side gig is great, but you've got to do, you've got, you've got to say, I'm going to do that five hours a week. And you've got to begin to begin and start that first hour. Like I said, every time you make a step, it's easier to go forward. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you look back and say, boy, I've changed my career for the better. Yeah. Every, every great journey begins with a single step. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Harry, thanks so much for, for all the wisdom that you've brought to us today. If folks are inspired by the work that you do and want to learn more, how can they get in touch with you? Easiest way is you can email me. My email is simple. My name, harry.severance at gmail.com. Uh, I have a page on LinkedIn, and you're, I'm more than happy to have people follow me or connect through there. Those are the best ways to reach out to me. Uh, periodically, like I said, I do presentations on this. My next stand-up presentation is a medical conference. You know, if you, if you really say, I can't stand my job, I need to get away and forget about it, there's a medical conference in San Juan, Puerto Rico, the middle of next month. Yeah, I'd be happy for you to come and hear me speak there. So, yeah, in the in the winter, it's uh, thinking just thinking about Puerto Rico brings a smile to my face. <laughs> so, um, so th Harry, thanks for thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it, and uh, and I've learned a ton today. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. 
If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all of the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.